Well, it is a very auspicious age. <laughs> <laughs> because I've given a number of, of uh, reflections on auspiciousness, mainly because of the, uh, the negativity that one sees in, in the world. And oftentimes one is, is not aware of a moment as being auspicious in itself. <clears throat> Sometimes we, you know, we bring our load of, of negativity, doubts and worries into a situation so that, that uh, the present moments of, uh, that are passing by are not really fully appreciated or recognized. And the more we uh, say we, we make an effort to to turn our life into an auspicious occasion, then we are definitely say in tune and in touch with with all conditions that one could say are that way. The human mind is is one where we can we can touch. Uh, the, the heavens and the earth, we have this, uh, we like the, the, uh, that which uh, unites and brings together both the, the divine and the, the earthly. Uh, these symbols are common to all religions and, and a religion isn't a religion unless it does relate our earthly state to <coughs> to a transcendent reality and to divinity. Otherwise, it is merely a kind of square-built bunker on the earth. And we can see the, the result of just living a life based on uh, exaggerating earthly qualities uh, and thinking that that is, is all there is, just our, uh, our bodies, our views, our opinions. Uh, and regarding that as, as reality. The human state is one in which the unknown is, is uh, the position we're in is, is so limited in its scope as far as, as uh, say, knowing everything about everything. We, even though uh, our Luciferian side would like to know everything about everything and regard maybe the, the humble knowing that we can actually participate in as being irrelevant or unimportant. So that uh, the way of a, of a spiritual path is always through humility, through being able to learn from just the most ordinary, insignificant uh, things of our daily life, rather than waiting for the big moments and the fantastic experiences. Our conceit is such because we can imagine, we can create images of divinity uh, that we, we, we can easily believe that, that because we, the images we create are somehow that way. Uh, we can just make ourselves the most important uh, uh, thing in the universe, the me and mine, it's a total selfishness. How I think, how I live, what I want, what I want to do 
is, is the important issue of the day. But we can also uh, open the mind, open the heart to all possibilities without, say, attaching to anything in particular to where the, the consciousness is an open receptive one rather than concentrated on a thing or an object uh, or uh, uh, a limited object. They, in the experience of mindfulness, in the realization through mindfulness, then the consciousness is, is vast and receptive and open rather than fixed on one, say, object uh, on a sense, sense world. Or no longer is one interpreting life from a position, from an attitude, from an idea. And I think this is one reason why the Buddha remained silent on the kind of metaphysical questions. Uh, and of course this has been, this has created a tremendous interest in the human, human mind. Why did the Buddha remain silent? Uh, why didn't he tell us uh, what is there after death? What happens to the Vitakada when he dies? And why isn't, is there an ultimate reality, a God? Is there an original creator? And all these, these kind of questions that people tend to uh, want to know, want to know the answers to. And yet when asked, the Buddha's response was a silent one rather than a verbal one. And so that silence is to be considered because silence is where we, we give up that desire to know things, to know everything about everything to want to have all the answers, uh, to want to be sure that, that our views or our feelings are supported by the establishment or by the religious tradition. The Buddha pointed to, as I was uh, pointing out this afternoon, to the experience of existential experience of suffering. This is, this, is, uh, this is the truth that he pointed to, not as an absolute or as a metaphysical doctrine, but as something we can start from. From this place we are right now, we have to start here. We can't start from somewhere where we are not yet, where we would like to be. We have to start from where we are so that in meditation, we're, we're remembering where we are. We're bringing into our consciousness that we're here. This is the way it is. Where well, I say the, the greedy mind, the ambitious mind, wants to start, would like to be somewhere else, would, doesn't want, doesn't think here is good enough, or that oneself is, is advanced enough, or that one should become something else or be some other place because this particular moment doesn't, doesn't have the gravity and the importance that we can imagine a spiritual life should have. We can idolize like India or play the Holy Land or the monastery or the, the, uh, the mountain peak, the cave or with the guru in the, in the Himalayas, uh, in, on the 
on the uh, mountain in northeast Thailand or whatever as some kind of place we should be uh, because here at this agricultural college in Simonsest <laughs> somebody wrote an introduction so I first met Ajahn Sumedho at the agricultural <laughs> it doesn't sound as, as Unless you're in Northeast Thailand talking to a person on, in a village near that mountain I lived in, they would talk. <laughs> I remember reading books as a as a child, as a as a youth, about India and people, you know, the razor's edge and and uh, sons of Karakoram and all these uh, these novels about uh, Western people going off to Mystic East and finding gurus and coming back at home enlightened, or having some fantastic experience in which which uh, realization was 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 possible, and so these stimulated a romantic image and longing in one's mind, to, and a feeling that somehow uh, truth and and wisdom some existed in Asia. It was there that you had to go. Uh, in uh, Seattle, Washington, didn't seem like it have any kind of mystical qualities at all. <laughs> it just seemed like a kind of coarse uh, uh, town, uh, kind of for for crude Americans who lived in kind of. Uh, the northwest of the United States was was settled by very coarse people and from from Europe, and it was kind of with lumberjacks, loggers, Paul Bunyan, that kind of mentality, and so that they, it didn't seem possible that one would would be able to find anything on on the mystical plane in such a in such a environment in Seattle, Washington. But strangely enough, uh, uh, we now have a Buddhist group in Seattle, Washington. <laughs> Going to Thailand, in, I went to uh, live in Malaysia for a couple of years and then I went to Thailand and became a novice in 1966. And of course this was, uh, was my attraction to the Orient. <coughs> in many ways the Orient or the East is a symbol, isn't it? Uh, it's a universal symbol. Of, it's it's uh, in the minds of humanity. It's in the East that the sun rises. And uh, looking to the East is a symbol of looking for some kind of spiritual uh, reality. So in our minds, the, the, the countries of India or China or, or uh, Burma or Thailand, Sri Lanka, these, these always convey to us that possibility because there is a longing in the human heart for truth, for beauty, for goodness. And as you see in, in, all, in every form of humanity, in one of the most kind of primitive tribal people to uh, and, and sometimes one sees an almost a, a total lack of it in modern uh, materialist 
humanity, which prides itself on being advanced, but in many ways is, 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 uh, has given up, has not, has not in any way acknowledged the potential and possibility of the human, of human existence towards perfection and realizing ultimate reality. In Buddhism we use words more on this level, ultimate reality or absolute, uh, transcend, transcendent, uh, as ways of, uh, say, taking away the, the attitude of, of, uh, of it being something with attributes. Because so much of, uh, say, when we, when we try to give attributes to that which is beyond attributes, then we become very confused. So that the Buddha tried to keep a very clear uh, presentation of his teaching so that, that there would be no confusion. But the confusion that rises around Buddhism generally is in regards to uh, the fact that it doesn't do that and you end up with a tendency to believe it is a, a nihilistic teaching. Some of the misunderstandings among Buddhists themselves, especially Western Buddhists, uh, is that Buddhism is not even a religion, that it is merely a philosophy, or it's, it's a humanistic philosophy, or it's an atheism. And it's easy to say if one is, is judging it by Western standards to see it as an atheism, or as uh, even a kind of annihilationism because Western tendencies tend to create dualisms where it's either one or, not, or the other or it's opposite. Where the, the Buddhist uh, Buddha mind is not, is not that which is attached to, to any dualistic structure but the, that ability to reflect on the extremes, on the good and bad, on right and wrong, on, on even the, the, uh, the uh, conditioned and the unconditioned, on the mortal and immortal. So even in our practice we're not trying to attach to immortality or to make judgments about mortality as somehow being lesser we're giving up that whole attitude of mind in which we, we grasp a position even for immortality and against mortality or preferring one to the other. The position of the Buddha is in the knowing of the conditioned as the conditioned and the unconditioned as the unconditioned and the relationship of the arising and ceasing the condition with the unconditioned. And in that is the knowing, the ability to know and see the way things are, see the Dhamma. So the Buddha then is, is, the, is, is the ability of a human being like ourselves, human, a human being who is mindful to see and know. We're involved in the experience of knowing and consciousness is is knowing uh, we're the, the, the relationship of subject to object. Be the fact that, that you are the subject of your lifetime. Uh, to me you are the object. 
But you have to, we can, one can only be the subject of one's life because that's the way it is. So taking the subjectivity, taking the person out of the subject, in other words, in, when we're talking about anatta, we're taking the person, the personality, the attributes, the qualifications, the opinions, the views, all the conditioned attitudes of being a man or a woman, of being a, an American or a British, of being a European or Asian, of being a Buddhist or a Christian, of being a Theravadan or Zen or Tibetan, of being anything. All, the, the, all that is, has a quality or an attribute to it is, is relinquished to be the pure subjective knowing, which is uh, deathless, it's pure, it's intelligent, and it's not personal, it doesn't belong to me, it's not mine. It's not conditioned through education. It's not a PhD in Buddhology. <laughs> So then the, 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 the understanding of this is taking the human uh, experience from the person, say from the objective world, say from out here when one is seeing or feeling things through the, through the senses, experiencing through the senses, to the, uh, being able to reflect on the actual feelings and mood that is in one's mind to the, the, to the purity of knowing the truth uh, that all that is subject to rising is subject to ceasing. And in this way the Buddha uh, aimed his teaching in, 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 in this, uh, what they call the elephant's footprint. Everything fits into it. Every possibility, every condition uh, is, is seen in this way as that which is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. So it's a, it's a, it's a very, it's, it's the widest perspective possible uh, for the human mind to actually contemplate from the, this position. Now the, the idea of the Buddha or the Bodhi tree, right, the, the place of enlightenment, the still point or the axis mundi, or the, 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 in Christianity, be the cross, or it's that point or place where there is, in which we would consider the center of the universe. And that has to be here. In the universal system, the, the place of enlightenment can only be here. And that, that means wherever you are. <laughs> but to realize that means that you have to give up looking for, thinking that there's some other place. Such as we might, Buddhists might consider the place of enlightenment is in Bodhgaya in India, under the Bodhi tree. And then, then the logic that would follow is that to get enlightened we should all go and sit under that tree. Well, many of us have, and have not. <laughs> it's nice sitting there waiting for the big bang. And <laughs> yeah. 
mindful of doubt and despair. <laughs> but this is religious symbolism, and the, and the tree, of course, is, is, a, is an ancient symbol because a tree uh, represents the, the roots in the ground and the, and the aspiration towards the heaven. And this is the human form itself, isn't it? We have, we have these very instinctual uh, animal-type bodies. And yet, rather than walking on all fours, sniffing the ground, what we, we are looking up to the stars, aren't we? we? We are reaching up high to the divine, to the unknown, to the mystery. But yet we have to pay our respect to the earth we're living on. We have to learn how to uh, live on this earth and with respect and with gratitude, and at the same time, aspire to the heavens, open our heart to the to infinite possibility, to plenitude, and to the mystery, and yet keep our attention where we are, so that we're with the with the the physical form that we we happen to have and the conditions around it. But these needn't be seen as, uh, as obstacles, but as merely the tools and conventions that guide us toward the enlightenment or complete understanding of the truth. We can see that, say, humanism or materialism is aimed only at the planet itself. So we, we have, we say, with the Marxism and the capitalism and, and the uh, idealism of this past century where the human, uh, human beings have exaggerated their, their intelligence, have overestimated themselves in creating ideas, very high-minded ideas, uh, that, they, that are not connected anymore to a transcendent reality. We're going to create the, I am going to tell you how to create the perfect society on this planet. We can see the tendency even in, in uh, modern terms of like ecology and this idea that somehow we're going to get it all right and create this wonderful planet into a, into a utopian paradise when we, when we, uh, this, this hope and expectation that somehow this is where we must place all our attention. The uh, humanity as an end in itself can only take us to despair because we all, we all get old and die. And, and no matter how, uh, what we attain, even become, even if we're arahants or, or Buddhas, we still get old and die. Uh, and, we, uh, and this is just the, the, the human state, is, no matter how wonderful your society might be, it changes. Is there any way that we can keep Britain uh, in a way that we would like it to be forever? So kind of get it to the point where there's a perfect democracy, everything is fair and just, everybody, there's no poverty, no illiteracy, uh, no need to complain about anything, uh, and, and then we would be truly satisfied. But we realize that, that that's not possible that even if we do manage to, to create a, a perfect 
society with with egalitarianism, freedom and justice and the whole lot, that, that it really leaves us with a sense of, of anguish and despair. We can see in, in, the, in the Western world how the emphasis placed on on, our, on fulfilling our ideas, and even if we are capable of fulfilling them, how empty and meaningless it, it is as an end in itself. I have, we have a monastery in Switzerland, and I, I look at Switzerland as a kind of perfect country, in the, the democratic system and high standard of living and uh, no real social problems, uh, high quality, uh, very beautiful, uh, very efficient, uh, everything. I can't imagine how you could, could make a country more perfect on the conventional level. And yet, it's, a, it's not a very happy or joyful place, is it? It's a pretty uh, depressed population. And they're not, it's not enough, is it, to just have pretty things and a high standard of living. So then it becomes apparent that, that the human mind aspires beyond just this earthly plane. But it doesn't mean that, that we have to put our attention solely on, on the heaven and ignore the earth because the, our human state does not allow for that. We have to respect the limits we're under as, uh, as earthbound, with earthbound human bodies. So that takes wisdom and mindfulness and compassion to learn how to live within the limits of a coarse body like our own. That's humbling, isn't it? No matter how much we might want to live on the ethereal or celestial plane, we always have to come to terms with the gross functions of our bodies. We can stay maybe in, in high states of bliss and jhanic bliss, but inevitably, we have to end up going to the toilet <laughs> or having to feed ourselves or some, some kind of physical pain or, or discomfort is going to arise, get cold or whatever. And this is, so this is a sign, isn't it, that, that we are meant to live in, on the ethereal plane as, a, as, a, as, a, as an end in itself. In this state that we're in as human beings, uh, we have to learn how to accept uh, the, and, and learn to live in harmony with both the heaven and the earth. Now this is ancient wisdom, isn't it? This comes from, from any ancient text. It's, it's endlessly talking about the harmony between the heavens and the earth. But modern materialism and humanism have taken away this, this emphasis. We, have, we no longer regard it as an important thing to consider. Now, when the ascetic Gautama decided and sat under the Bodhi tree, and this is in the in the Pali Canon, uh, uh, the story goes that, the, the, of course, Prince Siddhartha, brought, uh, born into this uh, to a king with all the privileges, rights of of the, of that status, you know, having the best and the best of the best, his, his father. Recognized that, that he might want to lead a religious life, so like all our fathers, they want us to become world conquerors and emperors rather than Buddhist monks or 
or monks or of any kind. So here, the Buddha's father actually was very much wanted him to follow in father's footsteps, take over the, the throne and, and rule the people. Uh, and so the, the attitude of trying to prevent Siddhartha from uh, being aware of anything or experiencing anything that would incline him towards some kind of spiritual goal. So the attitude of just worldly pleasure, worldly success, worldly values, were, was the, the diet of the prince. Then the, as, the, as he gets older, he, he marries, he has a son, and at 29 he somehow has this opportunity to go outside this particularly privileged environment to see the, uh, the four messengers that awaken us to spiritual aspiration, which are, in Buddhist terms, the old, old age, sickness, death, and the religious uh, seeker. So the prince, going outside this, this privileged environment, saw an old man, and he went, what's that about? What is old age about? And then he saw a corpse, uh, or saw a man sick, lying on the road, in pain and agony, and said, what is, what is pain and sickness about? And then saw a, a corpse, and that's a human corpse, that's what happens. And, the life force is gone, it rots away, decays. And then seeing a monk uh, sitting under a tree meditating, what is that man doing? So these questions are questions that we all, that I'm sure, you know, if you wanted to be more, less mythical about it, and uh, one would say, surely Prince Siddhartha must have seen old people and, had a, and occasionally had a tummy ache or realized that people died. <coughs> But as, a, as an awakening message, these things usually come to us later in life. When we're young, we tend to not really, even though we're, we might be surrounded by elderly people and sickness, we tend to not take an interest in it. It doesn't mean anything to us. It doesn't, it doesn't come to us as a message. It's just something one uh, ignores or doesn't... It doesn't it's not, it's not, we don't, we have it not ready for that message. As well as the, the, uh, the religious person, the monk. And so in, in Buddhist terms, the, the shaven-headed ascetic in the orange robe symbolizes uh, a human, um, um, individual search for the answers uh, and the <coughs> meaning of life. So these are regarded as the messengers. So, Prince Siddhartha uh, then going back to this life, this privileged life, no longer could fully enjoy it. It's like growing up, isn't it? You can, you, the things that we once enjoyed when we were teenagers, the, the parties, the dances, the, 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 the football matches, and, and all of these things that one thoroughly enjoyed, uh, as you get older, no longer, uh, you know, we no longer believe in them. We no longer... Uh, can put ourselves into that and, and enjoy it anymore, even though there's nothing wrong with it, nothing bad about it, we've outgrown it. it. We no longer believe in it. To enjoy something, you have to really believe in it. So we, we go out of the sandbox and the doll's house, and then we wonder, well, what is this all about? What is, what is the meaning of life? What is its purpose? 
So leaving all the privileges and the beloved wife and child going off to live a life of denial and asceticism, going to the other extreme, where before the, the life was a privilege and enjoyment, then then the Gotama went off to live a life of denial, of asceticism, denying all the pleasures, fasting and developing powerful states of mind through asceticism. And through denial and asceticism one can develop incredibly powerful uh, mental states. But still unsatisfied. And then uh, realizing that his, his five friends that admired his ability, his ascetic abilities, one day discovered him eating milk rice. Some, some lady came along and gave him milk rice, which was probably um, a luxurious food instead of the, the usual nettle soup and nails <laughs> that he was so good at eating and everybody admired and then he's sitting there eating this like probably if you saw me eating a bowl of ice cream you see it's not not a real ascetic <laughs> you lose your respect for me because <laughs> not sincere so is five friends and, and, and uh, uh, colleagues leave him disgust this gives him the chance to to uh, to go to the place of enlightenment so this is represented symbolized by the Bodhi tree in sitting under the Bodhi tree then when he sits down the first thing that happens is all the forces of Mara or all the all the temptations all possibilities suddenly come in to him and, and threaten him and challenge him. So there's this, in, in Thai temples, they oftentimes have one of the fantastic murals, classical art of Thailand, where they show the, the ascetic Gautama sitting under the Bodhi tree, and all that is frightening and deluding and tempting, all possibilities are trying to distract the Buddha. They're saying, Mara is saying, you have no right to sit under that tree, get out, and who do you think you are? And, and then the, all that is tempting and alluring on the sense plane comes by, tries to attract him and interest him in, in, in the possibilities of pleasure. And all the, that is, which is frightening and dreadful and threatening and all, and, and all that is dutiful and demanding and intimidating in the worldly life, even his father and and wife and child and come back your duty is to take over the kingdom and you are a father come back and, and, and raise your son and uh, from all possibilities of temptation and intimidation the the the, the who isn't the buddhi yet the, the ascetic Gautama touches the earth and says let the earth be my witness now this is a significant statement. In, in the, I don't know, this, this is the this Buddha image is the touching the earth mudra. Uh, his his right hand is touching the earth. Let the earth be my witness. So then this this brings forth the the mother earth. Mother earth springs forth and and says uh, bears witness to the right of the ascetic Gautama to sit in the place of enlightenment. 
where Mara is saying, you have no right to be there, get out, who do you think you are? Uh, Mother Earth then comes forth and says, he has my permission, he has the right. So this is an important uh, part of a religious symbolism, isn't it? That, that Earth itself, the, the, the female force, uh, Mother Earth, the bodies we have, and all that's connected to this earthly plane is actually that which gives us permission to be enlightened. And and then Mother Earth floods away the forces of Mara. And in, in Bangkok, they have a fountain in, in, in the, one of the main areas, the old part of Bangkok, where Mother Earth is in her hair. This water flows out of her hair and she's wringing out her hair and this water is flooding all the forces of Mara, which is the the, uh, the Baramitas or the accumulated virtues of, of uh, Siddhartha Gautama. So that these forces of Mars are flooded away, leaving the uh, ascetic Gautama alone under the Bodhi tree. So he's sitting in this in the perfect place in the Axis Mundi, the center of the universe, completely composed, reflective, mind reflective and to where the actual realization of truth. <clears throat> then, when he has his enlightenment, he is the Buddha, then he, then he thinks to himself, this, this uh, experience, this, this is what I have realized, is subtle, and people will not understand. How would I ever, how would this, how could this ever possibly be taught to anyone? What I have realized, this enlightenment, it is ineffable. How could you possibly put it into words or try, or symbols of any sort? So the thought came to him that it was impossible to teach and therefore there was no point in even trying. So at this point in the, in the legend, God comes down in the, we're called Brahma Sahampati. The Brahma is, is God in, in the Hindu-Buddhist tradition. And this represents the male force, or the father. So Brahma Sahampati is the, is the male figure, or the father figure, where Mother Earth is the, is the female, obviously. And Brahma Sahampati says, please, you must go forth and teach for the welfare of those with only a little dust in their eyes. You know, this is a, this is a formula when in, in uh, Thailand and in Amravati, when they asked me to give a formal talk, they chant this, uh, please, uh, in, uh, discourse on the Dhamma for those with only a little dust in their eyes. <laughs> it would become a formalized invitation to give a talk. <laughs> but uh, but uh, anyway, this, this is the, the Father, the, the Divine Father, and the Earth Mother. So these are, even in, uh, in Christianity, I'm sure you recognize a, a common symbolism, which sometimes in Buddhism is not even, even recognized. It, somehow the Buddha was enlightened on his own, you know, <coughs> by himself, as a kind of willful act of a human being, is how it oftentimes comes across. But in, in its actual traditional and legendary form, 
it is a very proper religious symbolism of the earth, the female, and the, the, the heavenly father. And it's the heavenly father that requests that he, that the Buddha go forth and teach for the welfare of those, for the compassion, out of compassion, out of love and compassion for other beings. So you can say that the Buddha is the child of the Earth Mother and the Divine Father. And in Hindu, uh, Hindu symbolism, isn't it, the Purusha and Prakriti, or the male and female energies produce buddhi, or the, the pure intelligence in the human state. So that contemplating the meaning of this, we see that, that our right to be enlightened as human beings lies in, in, our, in our virtuousness, our willingness to live in a very moral way, and to live and practice virtuous uh, and practice virtue in our society, to be virtuous, to, to be generous, to be kind, to, uh, to cooperate and share, to be resolute and to be um, patient and enduring, to be honest. All these things give us the right to enlightenment. And this is what Mother Earth says. He has developed these virtues. He has the right to be enlightened. And Mara, who's, who's the tempter, is testing, testing him out, you know. What right do you have to sit there? And in the suttas, in the Pali Canon, you find Mara always, even after the Buddha's enlightenment, Mara would come and see, see if he could kind of uh, test him, test him out and say, who do you think you are? You think you're the Buddha? Uh, Aren't you overestimating yourself and, and all that? And, and the Buddha says, I know you, Mara. No, it's a way of knowing, isn't it? Knowing Mara or knowing the, the, delusion, the delusions as delusions. It's not suppressing delusion or it's not killing the devil or annihilating, but it's in knowing. And I think in Christian symbolism, the same, that, that Jesus say, after the temptation, says, stand behind me. You know, not pushing Satan over the cliff. You say, you know, get over there. I know what you're about. <laughs> so it's an understanding and a knowing rather than a violent act of annihilation that is where wisdom lies. So, in regards to the, the uh, Buddhism as a religion, I definitely see it as one. Not, I have no doubt about its, its effectiveness as a religion, because a religion is a convention, a bond, isn't it? Binding us to ultimate reality. It's a, it's the, it's the convention, it's a vehicle and a tool for that realization. And, and of course, uh, uh, it's, it's not meant to be an end in itself. When religion becomes uh, an end in itself, when we start worshipping the religion, uh, then it becomes superstition. Uh, it, it's, 
it's because it doesn't it can't it as an end in itself we're only worshiping a tool or a vehicle we're not we're not using it we're not uh, getting inside that vehicle and letting it take us to that ultimate reality or enlightenment The Buddha Dhamma, the convention say, uh, because I've, I've done my, I've developed within this particular form, a Theravada form, therefore that, that's the way I teach, because you teach what, what you know. Not, not any statement saying that it is the, that it's the way everyone should do it, or that it's better than any other way, but it is the way that I know. It's the language that I speak. Uh, and so this is this is to be considered as a as a conventional form, uh, and and that is being made available uh, for those interested, but not as a, uh, a any statement of, uh, or any criticism or any opinion about other forms, because one appreciates the fact that on the conventional level there can be variety, infinite variety. Inevitably, each one of us has to do it all on our own. And whether Buddhist, Christian, whatever, the, the ultimate realization comes through working with our own particular unique conditions. Like you, learning to work with the way you are as an individual being, with the, with the equipment and, the, and the, the gifts or lack of them, or the health or the lack of it, or whatever that you you have to bear with. It's through wisely understanding that that you free yourself from delusion. So that the actual uh, religious traditions help us to, to accept the way we are, not as a fatalism or as, a, as an exaggeration, but as the willingness to work with what we have, the way it happens to be for each individual being. So in a religion then if its, its purpose is to uh, point and take us to, uh, to that ultimate reality, then we, we, we realize that, that, uh, that there's no problem really between religions if we understand the, the purpose uh, of a religion like an orchestra it's not because one plays the violin doesn't is no kind of judgment against the piano or the trombone but if if a good pianist and a good violinist and a good trombonist play music it's quite it can be very beautiful it can be uh, an orchestra of uh, that is extraordinarily beautiful but if the pianist, the violinist, and trombonist are not very good, then it can be experience of, of, of cacophony. So sometimes religious people never learn, never learn to play the instrument very well, so they drive people away. They, they, the scraping, screeching, horrendous noises that. <laughs> But we also have to allow for that in ourselves and each other. We can't go around demanding, you're a Buddhist, you, you should play the instrument perfectly, because we realize we're all trying, we're all learning, we're all uh, uh, 
putting forth effort to develop that skill. But we're not, and so therefore we must encourage and help each other rather than, than make uh, superficial judgments because it's not exactly uh, the sound that we wanted to hear at this moment. So, uh, this evening's talk, I, I offer this. And, and I think maybe uh, some questions might, <coughs> might be good to, to open the remaining time up for questions. experience of stopping the mind, isn't it? Well, you have to understand what, what that means, what soul means, because you know, oftentimes you, one tries to interpret Buddhism from, from a conditioned mind, a Christian conditioned mind. So, so you, to kind of uh, try to understand Buddhism through Christian terminology doesn't really work. Uh, so that, like, like the Buddha was pointing to the soul as conceived of as some kind of individual thing that lived eternally is the, because there was such an idea in the Atman and so forth in, in the Vedic, uh, previous Vedic religion, uh, that he, he, he did not create, he did not teach that there was any kind of thing that, that went on for eternity. <coughs> so it's, is the idea, the anatta is not a, a doctrine like a, there is no soul as an absolute doctrine, but it's a reflective teaching. So that you you tend to look at, say, the the uh, the attitudes and the views and opinions uh, as uh, as just conditions of the mind, rather than than as uh, as one's true nature or oneself in any way. Where the human tendency is to always want to, to grasp something. And so we grasp, we grasp the idea of God, or we grasp the, the idea of a soul, without really understanding that, that the, it, the grasping is what the Buddha was pointing to, not the idea itself. So, uh, in uh, it's it's the grasping of things when there is suffering. When there's no grasping, then it's dhamma. It's the way things are, and that's uh, that's where the uh, the realization is uh, 
or, or enlightenment is realizing the way things are in which the, 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 such a, a problem is no longer a problem whether there's a soul or what happens to the Buddha after he dies and all these things no longer make any in no longer uh, seen in, in, in the way of a, of a soul or an individual self as an absolute uh, it's like like God as a as a father or uh, the Trinitarian uh, teachings in Christianity uh, sometimes people have aimed, put so much emphasis on the Trini Trinitarian attributes that they they they've lost the perspective on on God as as no thing as uh, without attributes because it's easier to grab to grasp an, it's easier to grasp an attribute but to grasp not nothing is impossible except you grasp the idea of nothing then that's annihilationism you know where you 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 believe that there's nothing is another form of belief it's not it's, it's still a grasping where when there's non-grasping then then it's not a matter of the, the problem is solved there's no there's, well, there's no problem in uh, sometimes like Krishnamurti used to used to make kind of outrageous statements like all religions are wrong or priests and monks they're all you know attached to things and and uh, rites and rituals come out with with kind of blatant uh, uh, criticisms and condemnations of religion but one thing he didn't really didn't, uh, Krishna really didn't make very clear was that really it's not the conventions it's the attachment to the conventions and this the, the Buddha was, was his sole aim was pointing to this sequence of avicca or ignorance and from that ignorance then there's this this uh, desire arises and an attachment to the desire that sequence when there's enlightenment then there's no desire and then there's no attachment and and then in the then in because when we're not because uh, we have desires then we we start maybe with desire looking at desire and recognizing attachment we're not trying to become somebody who has no attachments but we're actually watching what attachment is so that you're, you're actually contemplating like if I'm attached to, to Buddhism if I'm attached to Theravada Buddhism then uh, if, if you should say I think Theravada Buddhism is all wrong and I feel very upset I could be hurt, I could be distressed by any insult or, or, or that about things that I'm attached to. But if there's no attachment, it doesn't mean that I just roam and, and uh, no longer uh, and throw away the Theravada form, but it means that uh, in the moment there's no, there's no attachment to it, it's as is. It's merely a, a helpful support rather than an end in itself. Uh, when in, in my monastic life I, I had to like you, you're always watching what you get attached to because your, your nature is always is so conditioned to cling 
like I found in Thailand, like with my teacher, I became very attached to, to the teacher, Ajahn Chala. And I became aware that, I mean, I didn't realize I was so attached till we started getting Western people who'd come and criticize Ajahn Chala. I find myself blowing up. And uh, somebody uh, say, oh, I know. If he were really enlightened, he wouldn't be smoking cigarettes. And then I think, our hunts can smoke cigarettes, there's nothing, no reason. <laughs> 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 Who do you think you are? <laughs> so then, you'd, then you'd watch yourself, you'd be very agitated and angry. You want to throw the, the man out of the monastery. Um, and you, you know, very unpleasant, nasty mental states would arise. And you contemplate this. Why do I feel so horrible? Why do I feel so angry over such a thing? And then, then you realize you're attached. You, you're attached. You don't. You're attached to what you, the teacher you created in your mind. You know, I wasn't, you know, attached to Ajahn Chah, uh, but the image of Ajahn Chah in my mind, which I wanted to preserve and to everyone else to affirm. So when anyone didn't cooperate, then I'd find myself very upset and threatened. So those are the signs, always, of, of attachment. And that's where, you, like in your life, you, you, if you start looking at where you get upset, where, you, where your weak points are, where, where you feel most vulnerable and, and most unsure, if you go right to that, those places, then you begin to see what what attachment is and the insights into letting go non-attachment because Buddhism is a very non-dogmatic religion it's connected to that really I guess right it, it's 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 a uh, it has no metaphysical doctrine uh, it's it starts from existential truth but then it doesn't mean it, it is not metaphysical. But it, it makes no metaphysical doctrine. And there's a belief. You're not, you're not asked to believe in a metaphysical doctrine. But it, it's actually by recognizing uh, the reality of a moment, then that, that metaphysical realization is, is, is there. But it, it's... Uh, it's through realization rather than through belief. Where the theistic religion very much starts with doctrine as a, as a position, metaphysical doctrine, like I believe in God, where the, in the, in the creed, like I believe in God is the beginning, and then the, the Buddhist starts, there is suffering. So the, these, are, these are just two different approaches. The danger with I believe in God is it tends to, to one never gets beyond believing and, and uh, one more or less makes assumptions. The danger, and that's called eternalism, and the, then, the, uh, then the, the danger of the Buddhist path is annihilationism. Mm -hmm. 